Chapter 5 Survival Dude Audition A fun goal while being out in Montana was picking up some helpful survival skills, not so much a situation of necessity as I rested in a welcoming cabin with many conveniences at my disposal. Yet, this perched a far better opportunity than any other stage in my life to try out techniques. Preparing for the unknowns simply made sense in our case. While prepper shops with overpriced solutions were popping up throughout the nation in anticipation of the threat of Y2K and the impending nuclear winter that would trail behind, I merely wanted a steady and simplistic self-reliance for any juncture of hardship heading my way. Becoming as adept as someone like Matt Graham would never happen, nor was that complete lifestyle ever desired. Only an appeal to become less clumsy and paralyzed in the wild with some practical tools to keep in the tool bag. Survival stories were always fascinating. Stories of overcoming adversity, perseverance, using ingenuity. With enough enthusiasm for enjoying wild places beyond the reaches of immediate help, it is an easy sell for one to have a firm base of skill to help oneself and others stay alive until aid arrives. I picked up a few survival manuals. Tom Brown's The Tracker, Tom Brown Field Guide, Wilderness Survival, Nature Observation and Tracking, and the U.S. Army Survival Guide. Eat Like a Bear I also picked up some books on wild edibles of Montana and the Rocky Mountains. I enjoyed eating. I loved picking wild berries and other munchies. Back in Ohio or Tennessee, there were some mulberries, raspberries, blackberries, wild strawberries, apple, persimmon, sumac, and wild onion. Sassafras tea and dandelion coffee were delightful beverage additions. I'd even eaten stinging nettle after several changes of boiling water. Foraging is ancestral. There is some strange satisfaction in eating while wandering around, similar to going over to a friend's house as a kid and foraging through their cabinets and refrigerator without permission. In Montana, I wish to eat like a bear. Without so much of the hankering for dumpster diving or fear of cheese crackers, being that we were already well into the fall, the wild edibles were speedily becoming unavailable. I scouted the fields almost daily. What I really sought after was the almighty huckleberry, but that window had passed regrettably. The window had also passed for chokecherry, gooseberry, strawberry, blackberry, raspberry, salmonberry, thimbleberry, and mountain sorrel. Yet some remained. The two berries that I became most acquainted with were bunchberries and bearberries, kinny kinnick. They were scattered all over the area, both on the property and surrounding state forest land. Neither of them tasted overly delicious, but their abundance made them a tough item to ignore. A popular property of bearberries is that the leaves are alleged to pass for a tobacco substitute. I did not smoke, though some try for the sake of naturalistic discovery. It is based on flavor, as there is no nicotine or other stimulants that I am aware of. Another concoction that filled my glass occasionally was pine needle tea. Not sought after for its taste either, but exceptionally healthy as an excellent source of vitamin C. Within the same vitamin realm were rose hips. 
There were plenty of rose hips and juniper berries that persisted throughout the winter. Rose hips had been everywhere I roamed previously in the continental U.S., so that proved an easy find. Woods Lake provided some marshy sections, home to another common favorite, cattail. While the down became a suitable filler for a stocking cap in the colder months, the real payoff nestled below. Digging into the muck, there was a pleasant tuber full of starch with shoots bearing the taste of cucumber. The chances to collect this quickly faded, though, as the water and mud became something to avoid after Halloween. Fishing The fish stocked in those waters were largemouth bass, cutthroat trout, rainbow trout, brown trout, bull trout, yellow perch, and northern pike. There were whitefish, but much too massive for our inexperienced amateur endeavors. We devoted most of our time to Murray Lake. We tried shore casting. We tested out the tubes. Ice fishing never really appealed much. Ice fishing sounds very frozen. Brad and I drove down to Murray Lake with the tubes and wetsuits. I kicked out to the same spot I had caught the fish last week, only this time I came back with less than I went out with. After some amazing 40-yard casts, I finally cast the hook off my line, and being that I didn't take any tackle out with me, I was done for the evening. Brad didn't catch anything either at the opposite end of the lake, though fish were jumping all over the place just to mess with us. The sun had set by the time I got to shore, but the moon lit up the lake. Even though Brad and I were probably 200 yards apart, we could communicate simply by talking in regular tones. The voice just carries across the water, I guess. It's pretty cool. Calms, 9-20-99. Several attempts were made at Beaver Lake, the largest lake in that area, aside from Whitefish Lake. Its shape was that of a wax W that had melted in the sun with stretches on each end extending almost a half mile. The south section, which was the base of the malformed letter, appeared the most accessible for parking and launching by raft, whereas the other side was marshy and had a gentle stream. This stream led to a lesser body of water, the Little Beaver Lake, shaped like a human molar. The results of our fishing at Beaver Lake were terrible, but we had two divergent stories to tell. When we got to Beaver Lake, we were on the opposite end from Uncle Hal's favorite spot, so I figured we could kick our way over there in the tubes, and we did. It took a long time, but was very enjoyable. Once there, I loaded my weapon with a worm only to have it backfire. The dang pole was sticking again. I put a fake worm on, put the hook in the water, and manually extended the line as I kicked away. There were so many fish, but none were hungry. Well, at least they weren't hungry for a plastic worm, and I don't blame them. I wouldn't want a real worm either, but that's their preference, I suppose. On the way back across the lake, my pole was casting fine. Moody, I guess. That journey ate up the daylight quickly. Calms, 921-99. This entry was incomplete. Though comprehensive in expressing the recurring failures of angling, the entry fell short of going in depth about the coffee and water that I had just consumed. His reflections failed to acknowledge my irresponsibility of not urinating before putting on waders for a journey through water and time. His words offered no mention of my bladder. Why would he write about my bladder? because I damn near lost it in the line of fishing. I live to tell the tale, and so I must take you back to where the fishing story began. It would be a delightful start to the young afternoon. 
The sun peeked through the windows of the cabin, spurring a revolution of motivation. A cold passing dawn meant a noble time for the second round of scalding water sifting through fresh coffee grounds and a white filter. Sounds of near-boiling temperatures percolated a coffee pot that would nearly seal one man's fate. I opened the cabinets to find the right lure, two pinches of sugar, two drips of cream. I weighed in on cinnamon, but the sun was out molding a shadow already. No cinnamon. Nutmeg was needed for this time of day. I sat in the lazy boy with my steaming coffee. The coffee first cooled with a steady breath at its surface to a manageable 135 degrees Fahrenheit. Next, the contents poured down my throat in anticipation of repelling some surfacing tiredness. Mmm. -hmm. Further down, the coffee dropped through the esophagus. Though some absorption would occur, most of the liquids were not so fortuitous. Andy was now awake and fit for a dramatic day at the lake. We had counted on a showing at Beaver Lake for quite some time, and today would be that day. Armed with fishing poles and tubes, he remained ill-informed about the status of coffee racing through my body. He had no idea that I had even drunk coffee. The liquids were now in my stomach, facing the doomsday, hell-like, acidy conditions reminiscent of the Tarawa invasion. We loaded up the Aloha with our gear and headed down the bumpy road. The vibrations seemed to expedite the fluid's momentum like a jigged bait for attracting bass. I took several finishing drinks from my thermos, full of the second cup of coffee, followed by a liter of water to remain hydrated. There would now be two fronts of fluid processing inward. We arrived at a dirt parking spot at Beaver Lake and dressed in impermeable waders. Little did I realize I was putting on a casket tailored to the burial and preservation of any unplanned call to nature. The original wave of coffee had seen enough processing in the stomach and thus flowed through twenty feet of turbulence in the small intestines. The second wave of fluids had newly reached the stomach and jumped around like a fish at the surface, risking suffocation for thirsty insects. Getting far out on a lake with a tube, waders, and fins was amazing. To be in frigid water without being wet felt free and exciting like a duck. Inaccessible spots from the shore became prime targets. Sometimes a tube can even go where boats cannot. Andy ventured off to his own location just as some coffee trolled off to my large intestines. As for the majority of fluids, they would smile upon the kidneys with great relief, one ultimate chance for salvation. The drawback to fishing in a tube is that it takes an eternity to get where you want to be, and much longer to get back. But I wanted the big fish. By the time I reached a location of near perfection, I sensed another nibble. The digestive system had fully mined that first wave of consumed fluids, I felt the abrupt coffee strike on my bladder. At least twelve ounces, but possibly more. The fight commenced. Coffee on, I yelled. The duck paddling began. The shore seemed so far, perhaps two hundred yards away. Staggered fishermen throughout the waterfronts were tiny figurines, 
so distant and small. The invisible speedometer showed five yards gained per minute. No duck would ever boast of such a pathetic velocity. The second cup of coffee and the liter of water had finished their joyride with much greater velocity and were putting up a marvelous fight. This had to be more than twelve ounces. This was a whopper. To relieve myself now would mean another thirty minutes swimming in sixteen ounces of pee. To go now with no change of clothes would mean a drive back to the cabin soaked with urine. I entered those waters with a catch-and-release permit only. The aches in my abdomen worsened as shore approached like a glacier, a glacier going uphill against hurricane-force wind. The stronger I paddled, the worse my bladder expanded. Too much tension, and it would break. But that coffee continued to fight tenaciously while I boldly reeled in that shoreline by the pedaling of my fins every chance possible. Thirty feet away... Twenty-five. The theme song to Chariots of Fire played in my mind as my feet kept kicking. Twenty. Fifteen. There would be no squirts of anticipation. The fishermen at the beach erupted with glee and waved me in, akin to flight deck attendants on an aircraft carrier. Ten. The music intensified. Three. Two. One. I rolled onto Mother Earth and somehow crawled and walked forward toward the bushes. Two large lumberjacks stood with arms crossed in my path, but once they witnessed my determination quickly gave way as would club bouncers allowing a VIP through. I unzipped. I showered the first bush I found. My hands would not hold an aim. No. They were held high like the dramatic scene from Platoon. I fell to my knees after all the strain vanished, arms still in the air. The outputs weighed in at a new Beaver Lake record of 19 ounces. There was no concern for onlookers as they were still cheering, for I had averted a medical emergency amidst the biggest battle of my angling career. No medevac needed. The coffee and water had just begun a new circle of life. Fade seen to black. This fishing story was inspired by true events. Hunting. There was a mild appeal to live off the meat we provided. I did not have a hunting license, knew absolutely nothing about hunting, and had no idea what the seasons were. I did not care to know about the seasons either. As a 22-year-old in 1999, the mere idea of having to have a license to hunt or fish seemed to go against what living in the woods was all about. I understood the why but enjoyed the conception of being off the grid. There is no license for someone living off the land. There were deer, moose, elk, grouse, bear, squirrel, and duck. Hunting was not something I wanted to do on the property either. The passing wildlife breathed life to the woods while rambling around, leaving senses of joy. I feared ruining the balance. Surely the land could have sustained some harvest from time to time, but such a concept never felt proper. We were on someone else's property to add to the moral dilemma. The situation was a bit of a catch-22, because had I gone anywhere else, I would have had to abide by the laws and permits and so forth. Doing some heavy reading from Tom Brown's books inspired me to want to break out and hunt. Not in a stand, not using dogs, 
The art was about studying the animal, finding its patterns, tracking, and stalking. Stalking is a shunned word, both in the city and in the hunting community. There is still a certain segment of that community that believes in the primordial process of hunting and not just drinking beers, sitting in a stand, and waiting to take pictures of a carcass to show off. Stalking an animal was about being in concert with the surroundings and understanding how the animal perceives a predator as a threat. Wind direction, movement, scent, sound, camouflage, ground vibration. To be silent in the woods meant adjusting the footwear. Boots in the forest are a tough entity to suppress. The contour of the ground cannot be sensed. The touch awareness to know that twig will snap when too much pressure is focused on it. Boots make rolling the foot to distribute weight nearly unthinkable. Watching a house cat sneak upon another cat or bird provides a lesson in perfection. Their feet and the gradual smoothness of their overall balance. That was what stalking was about. I have no experience stalking anyone, but I'm sure the same principles apply. Just kidding. I'm ashamed that you would need me to put just kidding. If you're a red squirrel and you're somehow reading this in the fall of 1999, then I am not kidding. Your day of reckoning is coming. In early October, I left the cabin before daybreak, armed solely with my bowie knife for personal protection and bear spray. Time to scout out a hunting site. Quail or squirrel was the potential target down in the lower depths of the north side of the property, a place I have been through a few times already. The region was perhaps the most densely inhabited on all the property as there were open areas close by and dense pine. Still enough underbrush to cover small game. There were bunchberries on the forest floor and bears loved bunchberries. Being on high alert was the strategy in silent hunting. A contradiction to the guidance for trekking in bear country. Bears dislike surprises and making plenty of noises helps them decide ahead of time if you are worth eating or not. I instantly found squirrels that were busily feeding and stockpiling for the upcoming winter. Within a 250-square-meter range, there must have been at least six with intermittent chatters and disagreements to my presence. I lay in the brush for several hours just observing how they moved, watching how they somehow seemed to keep a check and balance between their territories as one would freak out the moment another squirrel crossed that invisible border. Frequent feeding branches could be discerned by the shell piles beneath them on the forest floor. Oftentimes, there were clipped branch tips on the ground, most likely from the squirrels, but I could never catch them red-handed in the act. I slowly recessed from the area, confident that this would be where I would find the most success. That evening, I packed up my gear and the shotgun and headed down to my primitive shelter. More on that later. The next day, I would hunt squirrel, and I wanted to feel close to the whole process. Sure, the cabin was only a quarter mile away, but sleeping outdoors in the cold quenched the intimacy of the moment. Not even a fire for fear of smelling like smoke. Some survival experts state that the odor exists in nature, and therefore is not bad to smell like it while hunting. I maintain skepticism, as I could not imagine animals ever thinking fire smoke would be something they should ignore. But what did I know? Warmth came only by natural insulation, 
stuffed inside the shelter to preserve my body heat. The contents included leaves, evergreen, and cattail down. My insulation worked a little as I did not die of hypothermia. Before dawn arrived, the hunt began. I broke the day frozen. Not quite, but close as the stars were out and all heat preservation surrendered. I returned to the plot I had scouted the day before. The birds were out. The squirrels were out. I passed a deer en route to the location. I had my shotgun ready and crouched down, just as I had done the day before. I felt more in tune. If there was a chance, I was going to take it. Practicing splatter vision that I had picked up from the tracking book softened my focus on any singular object. The technique collectively recognizes the tiniest movements of all surroundings better. All senses seemed more attentive than ever before. Area conifers smelled better. The wind felt more pronounced despite being deep in the timbers. I wholly became a part of the moment for perhaps the first time in my entire life. I zeroed in on one squirrel as I had a clear but covered passage to close width for a shot. I wanted to be close, but not too close with a shotgun. Too close would be disastrous, as having a shotgun for hunting squirrel was already overkill. I slowly stalked closer as my freezing bare feet felt every twig, every needle, every thorn. Ouch! The stop and go probably lasted for two hours, but to be honest, all constructs of time fled my senses. It was just my consciousness and the prey, and a bottle of wine. Not really. The squirrel made its forage runs again, and I feared that it might scamper away. But like the previous pattern would suggest, the squirrel retreated to the same branch and began eating. I slithered close enough this time and eased my arms into position, using the brush to distort my outline. I froze my breath, squeezed the trigger, and with the kick of the shotgun fell the lifeless squirrel twenty feet to the ground. I dashed up where it lay motionless. Luckily, it was dead because I had no clue what to do if the shot only wounded it. I had my knife, but I was not quite ready to be that primal. I felt superb and terrible at the same time. I sat there for a while just thinking about why I felt the way I did. I swelled with immense pride. This was my first hunt, and I would not let it go to waste, as I had no kinship to trophy hunting. The gathering moments allowed enough mindfulness to realize how in tune with my surroundings that hunt made me. I also felt remorse. Not as if something was wrong, but the kill felt unnecessary and excessive. The hunt stationed too close to the cabin, voiding any sensation of earning the kill. The moment did not feel like survival, but it was. That method of sustenance availed for thousands of years, whether by club or spear or firearm. Perhaps an expedition-level hunt with a license and guides that could show me what to do would have felt more appropriate after all. I woke up today to a shotgun blast. I figured that Brad went to shoot skeet without me, then I remembered that he mentioned that he was planning on hunting squirrels one of these days. I was right. He got one. He skinned it and hung it from a tree right outside my window. It was quite gruesome, but he's trying to learn how to clean them properly. As far as I can tell, he did a good job. 
He cooked it over the fire and ate it this evening. Calms, 10-10-99. I had taken the appropriate care of skinning the squirrel, based on some guides on how to do it and what to watch out for. I was not aware prior to those readings that improper care could result in contaminating the meat. Quite a strange thought, since there seemed to be some randomness to how predators eat their prey in the wild. Working at the zoo, raccoons or possums commonly embarked on hapless ventures where the cougars, bears, tigers, and wolves slept, driven by the aroma of what we were feeding them. I would only know this happened because I found the remains of only their intestines. Fascinating how animals know what they can and cannot eat. Pelicans just eat the whole damn fish, spiny fins and all. Never could I quite grasp that one. The squirrel hung to help drain any blood. Yes, I pinned it up outside Andy's window, and there may have been a Lord of the Flies statement to be made from that, given we had been stuck in the area long enough to feel the onsets of cabin fever. The other reason for the location picked was because it rested near an accessible tree far off the ground. I cooked the squirrel by basting it over a fire with a stick going through. Rodents have plenty of parasites, so cooking thoroughly was a necessity. Calling one small squirrel a meal was imprecise. A red squirrel only carries 100 calories. I expended double that amount by walking back to the cabin from where I had bagged the squirrel. Would there have been more small game hunts, the meals probably would have been better served as a stew, allowing for the bone broth to add value to the overall meal. The cooked meat was not noteworthy. It tasted generic, so we will just say it tasted like snake. Apparently, snake tastes like lizard. Apparently, lizard tastes like chicken. Apparently, chicken tastes like grasshoppers. An absolute quandary of a mind-bender is the grasshopper. Maybe not the grasshopper itself, but the doctrine of consuming them. This was an element of survival foraging that I had been wishing to try after studying how easy the task is. Why it is no big deal to eat grasshoppers on the property, but not feel positive about eating larger animals is beyond me. The act is quite the same thing, so why did it not trouble me, whereas hunting the squirrel did? My apologies. Grasshoppers bring out my philosophical side. If only that were true. That'd be a hell of a come-on line at the bar. Two lines that command a damsel's regard. Hey, sugar! And grasshoppers make me philosophical. Do try it. I frequented a field on the northern face of the tracks. I named the clearing Saltemantes Field. Grasshopper Field in Spanglish, where, on sunny days above 40 degrees, the grasses came to life by a bounty of bugs, many of which were grasshoppers. The field had no canopy from trees or brush, so the sun could shine down at full force. On those sunny days, the floor seemed 10 degrees warmer than other locations, and the spot became a favorite to bask when the conditions were right. Laying back to do some cloud-watching proved the preferred operation, but not this time. This time, I had an empty stomach. This time, I would betray the trust that my hemimetabolous friends had galvanized. This time, mighty Godzilla roved the fields of terror in search of meals. Terror pounced upon that bustling metropolis of a field of grasshoppers, while they jumped in all directions to evade capture. 
The pickings were easy, and they were unable to scream, luckily. Their futile attempts of fighting back in giant swarms to gouge out my eyes were quickly stifled. I may have beaten my chest a few times with a harrowing roar to incite panic, but no fire would pour out from my mouth. By removing their heads, most of the guts come with it. Sadly, the reflexive bodies did not stop moving around, so the satchel had to remain closed or headless escapes would be attempted. Gruesome, but no nymphy were harmed in the hunt. Only grasshoppers after their fifth molt with a maximum year of life remaining, anyway. Close to thirty or forty were snatched in a very short slice of time. Hopefully, you're not a grasshopper reading this with a clear ancestry tree, a willing legal team, and a 60 Minutes crew on standby. In the unfortunate event that happens, I gave full disclosure that some events of this memoir were vastly exaggerated, so by no means is this a confession. I have a rock salad alibi written in Big Sky in a big city that puts me in whitefish, posing for ridiculous Halloween pictures at the time of the infraction. What an awkward courtroom scenario indeed. I walked back to my primitive camp close by and started a fire. A perfectly flat rock would offer an ideal surface for grilling grasshoppers, the idea is, prop the rock up over the fire, and it becomes a Bigfoot barbecue. There are mixed theories about whether Bigfoot uses fire. Probably not. Once the structure is adequately heated, the grasshoppers are thrown onto the makeshift skillet until they are thoroughly cooked. Such as the case of the squirrel roast or most wild meats, the heat is needed to kill off parasites. From there, they are ready to be consumed by popping them in the mouth like pumpkin seeds, the taste was mostly char, but in a survival situation, this would be an excellent tool in the tool bag. Apparently, they are nutritious. Having no USDA guidelines written on their exoskeletons, I exercised faith in the survivor dude's bold claims. Navigation In all honesty, little concern emerged about getting lost. To the north, less than a mile away, were the railroad tracks, to the east were both railroad tracks and the big whitefish lake. Westward, if we skirted the property of the neighbors somehow, bestrode a major road. The south owned the sole direction to feel slightly disoriented as nine or ten square miles of state forest land could be underfoot before residences were reached. Straying beyond those boundaries increased the risk and involved more attention, yet any peak with a view would repair the bearings. In most cases, no map was carried, but on the chance that travels would take me beyond comfort levels, a topographical map might be carried. The partnership seemed foolproof in that area. Making the experience more personable meant creating a handwritten map. This stamped the key landmarks I had come to enjoy and applying names gave so much more flavor. Forgotten Poles Ridge emerged on the southern margin of Murray Lake, where I had left my fishing pole to get a splendid view. Kick My Ass Peak was just beyond the property line to the southeast and proved another tough but excellent view made available from an exposed hilltop with a steep, rocky climb to reach. Soldemonte's Field hosted the scene for many terrorized grasshoppers. The butt squeeze resembled a butt near Boyle Lake with hills on both sides of a stretch of train track. Suicide squeeze resembled butt squeeze, but boasted dangerously tighter hills on each side of a stretch of tracks closer to town. The lakes were lucky to preserve their original names, and there was a plethora of them to make excellent landmarks and reference points. 
I still needed to implement the GPS unit that my dad had purchased just before the trip. To that point, most wanderings were done without even a map as stated, so trials were postponed for the Magellan GPS. There were some tepid trial runs to become acquainted with the new technology. The year was 1999, and GPS was still a very untrusted technology, particularly at the consumer level. A few waypoints between hills proved to be smooth, well-guided trekking. November brought a chance to immerse fully into the human trials with a waypoint set to a spot on the property. Before long, thick conifers surrounded. The scenery blended with many other places previously explored. After 20 minutes of heading towards the waypoint through thick brush and marshy forest floor, a return to the cabin was due. 20 more minutes passed, and all looked so very familiar. Another 20 minutes cycled. Disorientation prevailed as the GPS kept hanging, displaying an azimuth of west when I must surely be traveling east. The first waypoint came into view. I was progressing in circles somehow. I pressed forward with guidance for another 20 minutes. That point meant abandoning the recommendation of technology to head in the direction that I assumed to be east. I could not know for certain as visibility in the thick forest was zero. I met a two-track within 50 yards and scaled uphill. It was not until I heard Andy wood-chopping that I knew precisely where I stood, only another 50 yards away from the cabin. From that moment, the GPS had to be held back as a supplement until further testing could be performed. When the sun shined prominently, the stick method of directional navigation became viable. The technique was reasonably effective, except in a northern region during winter months. The procedure starts with a stick in the ground. Next, take a rock to record the tip of the shadow. Wait 15 minutes. Doing push-ups or solo techno dancing works great for waiting. And then, notate the edge of the shadow once again. Lay down a stick that passes through the rocks. This is the west-east axis. The original point is west, and the second is east because shadows move the opposite of the sun. Fancy stuff. From there, take another stick perpendicular indicating north and south. This is more of a desert trick, but applicable anywhere in the northern hemisphere with ample sun to cast a shadow. Perhaps in the southern hemisphere as well. Shelter I wanted a bit of a forward operating base for nights I did not feel like sleeping in a bed, or rather when I felt like cozying up next to a fire. Something to scratch the primitive pioneer lifestyle itch. I had built several shelters over the years, most of them not even worthy of mention, but one stood out while living in Nelsonville, Ohio. My friends Matt, Vice, and Andy came down to visit. Someone had a relative in the area with several acres of land, so we decided we could camp out in the woodlands. We built an encircled colony of lean-tos with a fire pit in the middle. We had a busy day of amassing the materials and the fire was helpful at warming the sleeping areas, but seemed inefficient. In Montana, I had visions of some elaborate shelter structure that would be expanded over time, something that could be almost morphed into a rustic cabin and lived in often. I started with a basic A-frame, the A-frame style is probably the easiest and most common. The area at the north side was the flattest spot, yet not marshy or at risk of any flooding. 
There opened enough of a clearing to allow the safe buffering of a small fire pit. I gathered one long beam to bolster the length of the shelter and then two short but sturdy logs to hold up the long beam, creating my entrance. I then found varied length branches to support the roof on either side of the long beam. From there, the focal point was all about insulation efficiency as there were plenty of evergreens to choose from to coat the roof. Surprisingly, those evergreens were skinny and required some time-consuming modifications to pack in the greenery. The objective of insulation is trapping air as much as possible. Think of your body as a heat prison. The heat's on jailbreak, shanking its way through levels of confinement. With many chambers, the escape is delayed and chambers fill with body heat or some other heat source. With the basic design complete, the fire pit would need to be built. Close by to allow the hot air to push into the structure, yet properly distanced for the avoidance of slight breezes tossing sparks into the shelter. This scenario was not overly critical since I lay only a half mile from the cabin, but still not on my bucket list either. Nor did I want to start a forest fire. A heat reflector was added, with similar dimensions and size as the cabin pit. With all of that work performed, there could be no better time to realize that I had built everything amidst a bunchberry patch, a truly prominent patch that leaked well beyond my clearing and into the forest floor in all directions. Bare scat and bare scratches on neighboring trees would add to the disappointment. What a stupid mistake. But there sat about five hours of hard labor. The calculated risk was that the bears would go to bed soon and the structure remained. There were areas that were like quicksand. I had to be careful where I stepped. My fishing pole was giving me hell again. Brad showed me the site where he's building his shelter. I was in a negative mood and couldn't see the point in building one. I'm a jerk. It started to hail, and it was really cold, but it felt good. I decided to kick my negative attitude and start building my own shelter. I had a great time. Calms, 9 26 99